Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 32, where we're traveling back to 1974 and the 29th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Donald Martino for Notorno. So, Dave, what are your experiences with Donald Martino? Ever heard a lick of his music? (laughs) I haven't heard even half a lick of his music. (laughs) I don't know anything about his music at all until we started researching Mm -hmm. for this. Uh, He's one of those names. I think I'd heard the name before when I took a serialism class at at Eastman. I think we may have have looked at something briefly, but we didn't listen to it, and I, I don't... I can't remember a thing about him. So, no, I have not heard a lick of I'm impressed of you even knew he was a serial composer because, like, I knew the name on paper. I don't think I'd ever spoken the name before at this point. No. It's, like, really, uh, in many ways, an obscure name at this point in history. Could he be one of our most obscure thus far in our 29th? I think he may be one of the most obscure today. Yeah. Yeah, because even, well, maybe he's up there with Douglas Moore. Well, even you knew about Douglas Moore. I knew about Douglas Moore, yeah. Yeah, And Douglas Moore's vocal music is still performed decently regularly. So I think that he is one of those almost forgotten composers here, you know, two decades into the 20th century. Yeah. 21st century, yeah. Probably true. And so here we we are now looking at a piece for... I guess, what's the instrumentation? Do Is it an orchestra? It's not orchestra. It's kind of a no, chamber. No, it's a chamber. So you've got yeah. someone playing flute, doing yeah, <laughs> flute, alto flute, piccolo, right, everything. Yeah. Uh, you got a clarinet player, bass clarinet, uh, a violin player, cello, percussion, and piano. That's Yeah, okay. That's the composition. So it's a small chamber group, um, kind of like in Piero, where you're supposed to play several different types, flavors of the same instrument. Yeah. So if you're playing flute, you're also playing piccolo, that, that type. You're playing clarinet you're also going to play bass clarinet to to do this particular piece okay because we haven't had a lot of chamber pieces we haven't we you know we've had string quartets plenty of those uh some larger chamber uh, like concerto with uh, for piano and orchestra like gail kubik or those sorts of things but we've yeah. never had i don't think um, you know until recently we haven't had mixed ensemble like right. this uh and that's well, we'll get into the actual... Yeah, but that's the post-65 the post world, right? The, the after the two... The Pulitzer pivot. The Pulitzer pivot, as we started calling it. Yeah, so yeah. This, this movement after 64, 65, no prize, and then they start allowing electronics, and now here they are allowing these mixed ensembles as opposed to kind of standard, historical, Western, classical ensembles. So mm-hmm. something a little bit different. Well, maybe we should tell the story a little bit. Telling the story. Might we first just talk a little bit about who Martino even was at this time period? Because uh, he was known as this kind of um, cerebral, serial composer, very, very tied into that high modernism of the mid-century. That's that's who he was. And probably one of the reasons why he's not more well-known today, because that style has kind of fallen out of favor, except for a, a handful. But you know what's interesting is I think he has a similar background to Milton Babbitt in some ways. He does. Who Milton Babbitt is, if you know about his uh, training, he really wanted to be a popular song composer Mm -hmm. and wanted to play jazz and and wrote some popular songs. And so just like, and played the clarinet, just like Martino also began studying at nine, learned clarinet, sax, and oboe, 
and was composing, played in different bands, jazz bands I read. He played yeah. in jazz bands, so he was a actual performing musician, which is so interesting because it's opposite of his composing style. Right. His which composing is the style most is so, so cerebral. Yeah, it's, and, it's so exacting. Yeah. And here he's playing this improvisatory music. But he's also not a uh, didn't start out at an Ivy League. Uh, start attended Syracuse University mm-hmm. and then went to Princeton. So there's the Ivy League. Then went on a Fulbright fellowship to study with Luigi Dalla Piccola. So which is the serial connection? That's the serial site, yeah, exactly. And then taught different places, then some Ivy Leagues, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, and then interestingly, I think at uh, New England Conservatory mm-hmm. and was chair there. So. Not that's it's an East Coast school, but it's not an Ivy League, right? So, but his final job was Harvard, yeah, and yeah. that kind of shows. I mean, Harvard was after the Pulitzer. This is the '80s. He was teaching at Harvard, but he does kind of move Princeton, Yale, Harvard. I mean, that's that's the big three Ivies. So yeah. he's he, he's at least in that same kind of company we've been talking about. Is so common in the Pulitzers, the old boys network. He's very much, I think, a part of that um, that school in that style. But if you think about his music, this is the, the amazing thing is we've talked a lot about a couple of composers who in this time period, in the 60s, 70s, looking at the kind of incursions they thought of music from the popular musical world, whether it's jazz or rock and roll coming into and they thought desecrating the oh, hallowed yeah. halls. Yeah. He was very much one of those. Um, so we have a great interview <laughs> that he gave with Bruce Duffy, who's a, a critic in Chicago. And he asked him, he said, um, you know, what do you think about music today? And he said, I'm sort of fond of saying that whatever you want, you can find on concert stages these days. And Bruce Duffy says, that's not a good thing. And Martino (laughs) says, I don't think it's a good thing. No, I don't know what it's like in Chicago, but I know that personally, I don't like people coming to concerts in jeans and spending all their time opening candy wrappers and chewing gum and making noise and walking out in the middle of concerts and walking in, in the middle of concerts. I don't pretty much like what's happening. Not that there's much I can do about it. Get off my lawn. It's very much kids get off my lawn. Uh, impression. And he didn't like, and he goes on to say, a lot of music that's captured the imagination of and audiences in scare quotes, because he didn't even think they were proper audiences, <laughs> is music that doesn't seem to me to be deserve to be on the same stage with Beethoven. So clearly... Yeah, high modernist, very elitist, very high kind of the yeah, art on a pedestal. That's right type of uh, mentality here, which again is very interesting because you look in some other interviews or some other pieces that I read and he does seem like more of a relaxed guy who likes to play jazz and do this other Mm -hmm. side. So, but I guess there's a time and a place. And I think that's exactly right. That he, he very much felt like there was a separation between art music and popular music and he enjoyed jazz, but saw it as a popular music, not something worthy of the kind of attention that art music should be getting and didn't like that art music was not getting the attention it might have gotten 50 years earlier in the United States. Do you think that was kind of a stale argument by 1974? I think it absolutely was yeah. a stale argument by 1974. <laughs> yeah. Even in terms of our winners, uh, have they... I know, absolutely. Our yeah. winners have, have become more and more... Um, open in terms of the sounds that they would accept. Mm -hmm. So I think that this is in some ways, it's interesting, you can't call it a throwback because the Pulitzer never embraced this style of music. We have very few, I mean, like Elliot Carter is one of the few composers, uh, Kirchner, right? These few composers we can talk about. Um, For the most part, it had embraced, for about the first 20 years of its history, it really embraced that Western tonal, 
you know, write an opera, write a symphony, write mm-hmm. a string quartet. Um, so it's not a throwback in that way, but even by this point in terms of the arc of music history, this was kind of old school. Yeah. So the Pulitzer, even though they're awarding this music now, it really still isn't current to what was going on in the musical scene. If you think in 74, we're almost to music for 18 musicians yeah, and Einstein on right. the beach, right? This is the height of uh, minimalism. Yeah, drumming was what, 73? Yeah, 17? so this... Yeah. It, it's still kind of reactionary, even though for the Pulitzer, it's pushing forward. So yeah. interesting kind of dichotomy there. Well, maybe we should go behind the notes and talk about Noturno. Behind the notes. So as we mentioned, it's for a small chamber ensemble. It was a commission, in this case from the Naumburg. Uh, foundation for the new music ensemble Speculum Musicae. I think I have a few CDs with that group on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And premiered in Alice Tully Hall and Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. So it has this um, great pedigree. Oh, yeah. It was uh, it's an interesting piece because it's in 19 parts plus a codetta. It's in three mo- at least three movements the way it's the way, but, but he said but he didn't want to think about it as three movements. Right. He said he wanted to think about it as three chapters of a novel <laughs> was Ooh, the way okay. that he thought about it. Yeah. It's kind of got a program, sort of. Um, it's kind of this idea of all the things that go through your mind right before you go to bed. But he put that on at the end. So after he had composed is when he began to think about it. Uh, and he said, as I was composing it, it seemed to me to evoke not so much the external sounds of night, but rather the feelings one might experience in the dark hours. And from this perception, rather late in the creative process, it got its name. One listener has described it as nocturnal theater of the soul. <laughs> I'm very pleased with that poetic description. Uh, must be a pretty scary soul. I was uh, about they... to say, if, if this is what I was getting <laughs> and I'm going to bed, I would not be sleeping be a well. nightmare, I know. <laughs> it, is, it is definitely not the, the calming music that you want to put on your Headspace app so that you can no. calm down in your meditation <laughs> and go to bed. That's not what's happening here. Not at all. So that, that makes sense for the title, Noturno, and then mm-hmm. the Italian from maybe his Italian training or he was with Dalla Piccola or who knows, kind of getting into, because Carter liked a lot of those Italian terms and to put it in a different language makes it sound more uh, elevated for some reason. Yeah. Uh, But I don't know, from a listening experience for me, I'll say what I like. Uh, I I think I can kind of tell this and he, he mentions it maybe in that description or in what the interview, but he talks about the use of percussion. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's those really, uh, I don't know, it's like Messian and Webern Mm. and Stockhausen. It's that kind of timbre of the percussion. It's that early 20th century. Yeah. Because I was Bartok. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Bartok. Yeah. Yeah, That early 20th century percussive sound, but it's really only in the kind of middle part of the, right. The the middle chapter chapter. of, of the piece. Um, the outside movements are totally different. Yeah. They sound like they're different pieces yeah. than that middle section. Yeah, and it, it, apart from that, which kind of stood out, the kind of clanging, glassy mm-hmm. sound that I like, you hear a lot of the the same kind of extended techniques, the flutter tongues, the right. extreme register shifts. Uh, well, it's got a lot of Webern in yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds very, yeah. It's, I was going to say it's like Webern in the, 30 years after Webern died. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It has that very much that sound. The one thing that is different than Webern for me is that it's got this um, denatural yeah. that never goes away. It's always yeah. there in some, some way. And I thought I'd play just a little bit of the beginning and then the final seconds so you can hear the progression, hear how 
timbrally, it's pretty pretty much the same all the way throughout, except for that middle section. Uh, but it's because of that, I think, that middle D. So let me just play a little bit of that, the opening and then the ending of Motorno. <laughs> I mean, it's got that kind of jump scare there at the end. <laughs> We're not expecting the person to leap out at you, but no. that that constant tone almost gives it a quasi-tonal grounding. Mm-hmm. Although nothing else, no, allows you to follow what is going on. No, uh, in this particular piece, it's hard to follow audibly the structure. This might be one of the few serial pieces that we've had as well, because I don't I think. You know, Carter sometimes uses serial procedures, but he's not a 12-tone composer. Right. But this one is a 12-tone piece. But he says it, it's that's kind of an interesting description, talking about chain forms, how he put the piece together as a sort of cohesive jigsaw puzzle existing within his treatment of serial systems around that D and kind of these puzzle pieces going yeah, in and out. Yeah, you just kind of keep building links on that chain mm-hmm. so that you start with that opening gesture and then... He builds on it throughout the rest. And I, I can kind of hear that happening, but he changes, uh, you know, hexads so regularly <laughs> oh, yeah. that even though that D is there, you still feel completely unmoored. And I think that's one of the reasons why the middle section, in addition to the percussion, feels so steady mm-hmm. is that he isn't changing constantly. That's the harmonically, melodically, rhythmically, the most kind of stable section. Yeah. Did you find listening to it that you could... You know, because like I said, the the recording I had was split into three. Mm-hmm. Did did it was it readily apparent that it was changing form? No. no, I didn't think so either. No, in fact, I had read. You know, there's this dissertation that we'll link to in the um, in the show notes. But there's a uh, a recent dissertation by uh, a young man named Praznik, I think is his mm-hmm. uh, name. He did this uh, for a PhD uh, just this past year at Brandeis. Um, but he was looking at the second movement of Noturno. And so I had read through this dissertation and thought, hey, I'll know what's going on here and I'll, I'll hear that <laughs> shift when we get to the second movement. And then I was you know, taking notes and everything and looked up and suddenly we were already in the second movement <laughs> and I didn't know we had moved there. Oh, wow. wow. So we can listen a little bit to the beginning of that second movement in the percussion. And you can kind of hear this you know, Stravinsky, Bartok, mm-hmm. Schoenberg, early, this 20th, early century. 20th century kind of percussion writing. Those extended techniques. Oh, I yeah. mean, oh yeah, uh, all the tricks. <laughs> right, but 
it sounds of a piece with everything that you've heard in movement one and, or chapter yeah. one and chapter three. So I don't know not, not, uh, this is again, one of those pieces that's maybe more interesting to listen or to study. Uh, if you're looking at the music, then as a listening experience, perhaps because you can't detect a lot of these things readily. Well, and it's one of those, and this is a, with a lot of serial music where you focus on the micro yeah, and it, yeah. it informs and creates the macro, but as a listener, because you can't apprehend the micro, you get to the macro and you're kind of floating yeah. as you're moving through. Yeah. I, like some of the previous winners, it, it does have some interesting timbres in it. It I does. Say that. Some inter really interesting timbres. Yeah. So m more of a focus on that uh, than, let's say, Carter, which is, we thought the third quartet was a bit challenging. Uh, <laughs> just a bit. Just a bit. To get, <laughs> it's understatement of the year. You can't get through the first page. It's pretty tough. Uh, but this one does have some space. A little, it's not all constant that's Action. a that's a great so. point. It really does, and I think that lends itself to this name, Notorno, yeah, because yeah. of that space. There are, there are these moments of silence, moments of repose, uh, but then you get those hits that would never no. put you to sleep. <laughs> what did you call that? A jump scare. A jump scare. That yeah. was great. That's yeah. exactly what it is. <laughs> well, uh, I've I've been saving something for you, so I think we should probably talk about the reception of of Martino and kind of this piece and, and see what the reception was, because I've been saving this article for you. Hit or miss? All right, before we get to your article in the hit or miss section, let's go ahead and talk about the jury report. Okay, so uh, we have, so this was premiered, as we mentioned, uh, in 1973, uh, of actually an appropriate group of pieces. So it was Webern Quartet for Violin, Clarinet, Sax, and Piano, which is mm. kind of a pretty cool piece. Uh, Luciano Berrio, a piece called Chemin de uh, for Viola and Nine Instruments. I don't know that. Oh. And then Notturno. So that's a, that's a good collection. It is. I can see how they would all inform each other. It's perfect, yeah. So the jury, to address to our good friend John Hohenberg, mm. Yes. Uh, the recommendation of the Pulitzer Prize jury is Notorno by Donald Martino. Uh, it exhibits great musical imagination, sensitivity, and extraordinary control of the musical material in terms of rhythm, texture, and timbre. It is also notable for its clarity of form and musical consistency. No other work submitted appeared to be up to the extremely high level of this piece. Now, the jury is very interesting because we have a narrative, I think, that so far it's only been insiders. But here we have a member of the jury uh, who will represent something big, I think. So first, Gunther Schuller is the chair, okay. which kind of makes sense. It Gunther does. was a, a serial composer. President, New England Conservatory. Well, there's the, the old boy's connection of knowing Martino, That's no right. doubt. Who had been there. Who had been there, yep. Then Hugo Weisgall one of those names you see a lot, to a Queens College composer. And then the third, Ulysses K., professor of music, a black composer. Absolutely. So this is something that we forget a lot in our current discussion of everything, is that progress had been made in increments. It mm -hmm. doesn't happen all at once. And so the fact that uh, we have a black composer on the jury back in 1974 uh, is a, a pretty big statement. So. 
Uh, I think that's worth noting. Well, this is coming now nine years after the after the Pulitzer. Ellington. Yeah, the Pulitzer board recommended that Ellington be giving a lifetime achievement award, and the Pulitzer overall Pulitzer board said no, not really. So, right, right. So you can see. I think you're absolutely right that. Um, it's fascinating that they're beginning to have that, that openness of that diversity, even here in the mid-1970s. I think we begin to see that also in the diversity of what's going to be winning as yes. we kind of move forward in time. Definitely, definitely. So that was their report, and I, unfortunately we don't, know, we don't have any other information about other... They didn't mention the other, of the other nominees. nominees. Yeah. But clearly they zeroed in on craft, and when you have Schuler and you have Weisskull, you have people who are mm-hmm. focused on <laughs> serial composition. It makes perfect sense that they would gravitate towards this. Yeah, absolutely. And clarity of form and musical mm-hmm. consistency. So they were positive. For a different version, different opinion, shall we get into this? Well, I th- or you've first, got, okay, you're, first you're, let you're me killing read you. me, Andrew. Here. Okay. I, I know. I'm, you've been waiting for so long, and I'll <laughs> hold you off just one more minute, because, of course, we have to talk to our good friend Donald Hinehan mm. from the New York Times and see what the New York Times of was course. saying about this work. So is, um, uh, August 8th is the concert that he heard, and interestingly, uh, this concert also had Leslie Bassett's Time and Beyond, so Pulitzer, oh. former Pulitzer winner yeah. uh, was on the same concert. But this is what Hinehan had to say about Donald Martino's uh, Natorno, he said he tried to create, quote, night moods out of serial method- materials and did so only occasionally, chiefly in a Bartokian middle movement. Oh, very good with Bartok. Otherwise, Mr. Martino was pouring the same old formalistic wine into a new bottle. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. That's So the New York Times was not no. sold on this piece. No. Now, I know you have one that's e- that goes even further in terms of... Yes. It's, it's estimation of Martino and Natorno. Yes. So speaking of the New York Times, so we have the great, probably one of the most famous musicologists ever, Richard Taruskin, who also wrote for the New York Times for many years, uh, an article from 1996 called How Talented Composers Become Useless. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> even the title. <laughs> and so I've got some good quotes here. The nice thing about anism, someone once observed, is how quickly it becomes a wasism. Some musical wasisms, wasms, academic wasm, for example, and its dependent varieties of modern wasm and serial wasm <laughs> continue to linger on artificial life support, though, and continue to threaten the increasingly fragile classical ecosystem. A pair of new Albany CDs of music by Donald Martino have recently come my way like a gust of musty air. Oh, gosh. <laughs> They prompt me to throw open a window on the miseducation of musicians in America. So then he goes on, uh, and furthermore, so that's already off to a good start. It's, it's, it's already, whoa. Talking about piano music, so, uh, but Naturno will come in here in the end. Where Schumann could make his most telling, expressive points by means of subtle gradations of harmony, Mr. Martino can be expressive only in essentially inarticulate ways, the way one might communicate one's grossest needs and moods oh, <laughs> through grunts and body language. <laughs> oh, no. Huge contrasts in loudness and register being the only means available are constant. The combination of gross expressive gestures for the layman and arcane pitch relationships for math professors oh, no. is a perpetual contradiction. And then... Finally, these are harsh judgments, but necessary ones. Academic composers still maintain a smug front. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier. It does. 
In a 60th birthday interview, Mr. Martino was still blaming everyone but himself for the lack of headway his music had made despite mm. all his prizes and plum academic posts. He was still heaping Babitian scorn on, quote, layman, lobbying, as he put it, for a, quote, potty-trained audience. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and contending that, quote, what we need are concert hall bouncers. And, of course, he was still simultaneously bragging that audiences disliked Noturno, his Pulitzer Prize-winning sextet, while whining that his works were not more regularly performed before such audiences. Wow. <laughs> Dr. Tereskin has no time no. for Don Martino. <laughs> Not at all. Well, and he wrote this even while Martino was still alive. Yeah. So Martino uh, died in 2005. So this is oh, yeah. nine, nine years before his death. Um, he had probably just recently retired from teaching at Harvard. So still very much kind yeah. of in the scene, as it were. That's harsh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, a gust of musty air. <laughs> Nobody put, does wow. a put down like RT. That's um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but is that is that kind of uh, does he hit the nail on the head here? Yeah, I mean, he does. He yeah. does, and and he says what we've been dancing around. Yeah. yeah, which is one of the reasons. Even going back to the beginning of this episode, where we're talking about we don't know Donald Martino. That it's this name that never heard a lick of his no. music. Right. I mean, <laughs> no. Th this is exactly why because it is this kind of mid-century self-congratulatory and they give each other prizes yes. and so the the success begets success begets success everywhere but the concert hall yeah exactly and you you found a quote from our good friend uh, bruce duffy here about martino's what he thought about winning the prize what did he say yeah he said that uh winning the prize was commercially very valuable no question about this which is interesting <laughs> because no one he's just saying there no one would play his music no he said, winning any award or having any commission, having anybody say they like what you do is a shot in the arm. It makes you feel awful, awfully good. On the other hand, the successes you have, the more there is to live up to and the more responsibility there is and the more there is to worry about. Hmm. I think that fits in with some of our other, our previous winners have said the same thing, that it's, it's great for the notoriety, but it also is a lot of pressure. Well, it's the follow-up. Yeah, the, yeah, where's your... You, you win the Pulitzer, so someone expects the follow-up to be mm -hmm. even bigger. Right, you win the Oscar, you think the next film is going to be even bigger. I mean, yeah. anyone who wins one of these top awards, I think there is that pressure yeah. and feeling caged in. But I think also he's, you know, makes you feel awfully good to have a shot in the arm of <laughs> praise for your pieces, and then I can't imagine what he felt when he read Taruskin's article in the New York Times. Five word. These are harsh judgments, but necessary. <laughs> well, the music jury didn't only award something to Donald Martino. So I think this is the other thing we have to talk about is this is the first time in history that a special citation was given out to a composer. So Oklahoma, the great American musical from 1944, won a special citation from the Pulitzer board, but this is the first time a composer. So what composer did they decide to single out for some reason here in 1974? <laughs> well, it's a name that if you're an American music fan of the 20th century and you know a lot about music, a name that you've seen a lot, but probably haven't heard much of his music. Again, very similar, haven't mm -hmm. heard a lot of his music. And that's Roger Sessions. So from the jury report, since the early 1920s, Roger Sessions has been a commanding figure in American musical life as a composer, teacher, and writer. And then he, they talk about it some more. In, he has been uncompromising in his mm. pursuit of excellence, and he has rigorously maintained the highest critical standard toward all phases of his work. 
In view of his great service to American music, the jury unanimously recommends that Roger Sessions be awarded a special citation for music in recognition of his life's work. So, surprised or not? Well, it's interesting that they tried this with Duke Ellington. Yeah, yeah. Nine years later, it's okay for Roger Sessions, <laughs> and it's not okay for Duke Ellington at the Pulitzer board level. Right, right. Ah, uh, yeah, there's a lot to read into that. There's a lot to read into that. But it's also interesting that Roger Sessions goes on to win his own actual Pulitzer just about six, seven years later after winning this special citation. You spoiled the, the preview. The big the reveal. The big reveal here because he's going to win eventually. So this wasn't, it wasn't like thanks for playing consolation prize. But I think that's the way they're going to use it. So yeah. we'll start to see here in 1974 is the first one. There have been 11 so far of composers or, or musical artists who have been recognized with a special citation. So it's going to be interesting to see because I think a lot of times they go, oh, this person's at the end of their career. They haven't gotten a Pulitzer. We should give them a consolation prize of a special citation. And I think maybe that's what they thought they were doing for Sessions. And then, surprise. Yeah, well, that's, that's a good point because it's a, the, their letter starts out since the early 1920s. So this is 50 years. Of, oh, long and distinguished career. Yeah, yeah, and he still hadn't won the big the big plum prize, as Taruskin well, and then the name that comes to my mind, of course, usually with Sessions is Aaron Copeland because yes. of the Copeland Sessions concerts they yep. put together 50 years earlier. Oh, yeah. And, of course, we have Aaron Copeland having won 30 years ago for his Pulitzer. So. Yep, as well as Roger Sessions being a famous composition teacher at Princeton. So For many years. For many years. So his students, I'm sure we've, I think we've mentioned him probably along mm -hmm. the way in the podcast, but I'm sure at least one of his students has won, too. So... Yeah, very interesting here how they bring it up at this particular time mm -hmm. with two very uncompromising composers, I would yeah, say. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dave, hit or miss? Uh, uh, definitely a miss. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I got lost listening to it. Uh, mm -hmm. I tried a couple times. And just too much of the – it's that same problem that we come up with. It's too long. Uh, not nothing to latch on to mm -hmm. really, and um, some interesting timbre, timbral things, oh, like I said, and and some coloristic stuff I like. But will it make me want to listen to any more of Martino's music? Probably not. So how about you? Oh, the musty air was too much <laughs> for me in this case. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely a miss for me. It was one that uh, it was hard for me to get through a couple of times, even to prepare for the podcast. Yeah. Uh, I think you said it earlier, in, more interesting to read about than it is to listen to. That's kind of how I feel about this. The, the, the reading that I did, I was like, this sounds fascinating. Yeah. And then I would go and listen to it and think I get none of what I'm reading, no. just orally. So if I'm sitting in a concert hall, if I'm in Alice Tully Hall listening to the premiere of this, I'm, I'm not going to understand what's going on. What kind of people do you think were at that concert of Barrio, Webern, and Martino? Oh, I'm sure it was all the hardcore, oh. <laughs> serialist, modernist. Yep. I'm sure that they were. And I'm sure they were thrilled with it because that's their bread and butter. That's where their head is. That's what they're listening to. That's what they're composing. Yeah. I, I'm sure it was a, a very big success, uh, even if Donald Hennihan thought it was <laughs> formulistic wine in a new bottle. <laughs> I love that. And on that note, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography and a nice picture uh, of Donald Martino. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when, for the first time since 1962, I should say this is our 30th 
winter coming up too, which is exciting. We discuss a vocal work by a composer best known for his operas, Dominic Argento, for his piano and vocal work from the Diary of Virginia Woolf. Until then, keep listening. <laughs>